Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. David Weavers about his wonderful new book, The Origins of the British Empire, 1600 to 1750, published by Cambridge University Press last year. Dr. Weavers is Leverhulme Trust Early Career Fellow at Queen Mary, University of London. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, Dr. Weavers. So our first question is always biographical. Where did you grow up and how did you become interested in the history of the British Empire and the East India Company? Thank you, uh, Sammy. And also, obviously, thank you for welcoming me onto the uh, podcast. It's, uh, it's much appreciated. Um, yeah, so I grew up in the south of England. Um, uh, I've been in the same town all my life. I've obviously travelled around for study and, uh, and work, but um, I live in a quaint seaside town on the English Riviera <laughs> on the... Uh, uh, just outside Brighton, um, and um, uh, and I went to uh, university, University of Kent. I did my degrees there, um, and then moved on. Uh, I did a postdoc there as well, so I spent a lot of time at University of Kent. And then moved on to Queen Mary to to do my Leverhulme, um, and uh, in October I'll be joining the University of Warwick. So um, that's sort of my background. Um, uh, how I became interested in in, in the topic. Um, um really i mean I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit this because i think it shows the importance of being educated on this but um i came into the british empire sort of in my undergraduate period through just enjoying the sort of boys own adventure stories of empire of these adventurous uh european men out in the kind of non-european world it's mysterious and dangerous and they had these heroic exploits so this is how i actually came to the, the topic of the british empire in my undergraduate study. and then it doesn't take long to be educated in in empire to realize that it's that it, that's probably about as far from the truth as possible and um so you know once i i'd read my edward said and you know, uh, dip my toe into new imperial histories, which was sort of taking off around the time I was doing my undergraduate degree, um, and um, and then global history. By the time I was into my masters, um, and then appreciating that these are you know Victorian fantasies of empire that you know reproduce um, certain racial inequalities and prejudices. Uh, you know, these are part of the discourse of empire. So I came at it in that in that very perverse way, but. But then, really appreciated that actually, uh, empire is uh, as as a topic is a fantastic segue into uh, revealing a much deeper and richer history, which is one in which you know uh, Europe was not the center of the world. And suddenly, you crack an egg and you open up all these marvelous different histories from all these wonderful different countries and periods. So um, you know, and then I, I really for the East India Company, uh, uh, there was a specific book, um, The Honorable Company by John Key. Um, a Scottish historian and it's probably one of my favorite narrative histories um uh, that's also you know expertly researched and that's been that was so influential and I thought wow this is probably the most interesting history uh, uh historical subject I've I've ever, ever read it you know it's absurd this kind of small kind of uh, a group of merchants um and I was really interested in I was interested in as everyone was coming at this topic um 
you know, in the early noughties, you know, um, is how, how did it transform into this big empire? Um, I was really interested in in, in that uh, that history. But um, what I found interesting about Key's book is that he stops sort of around the late 18th century. He doesn't, you know, he, this isn't a full history of the company. And I think one of the reasons why is because there's just so many different, the, the, the history of the East India Company is, is many histories of many different um uh, kind of iterations of 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 empire and 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 Europeans in Asia. So so that's kind of how I, I came to it, and and that's kind of my background. And you know, I think it's interesting that you know, um, you know, as as kind of like a white male growing up in the south of England, that's you know naturally the way I came to to this topic. You know, through through the glory of empire. Um, but that's why I think it's so important that that we write this sort of history to so people are quickly disabused of the the kind of romanticism empire um which is obviously a big big uh, discussion in the public sphere at the moment um uh, about empire and and its legacy so um yeah so a kind of complicated segue into it <laughs> no thank you and you've kind of already addressed you know how you came to this project a little bit i was wondering if you could talk about how um uh, why you decided to write uh, this particular book yeah i think um i mean really this came through um um being really dissatisfied with the state of the field, really in, in two ways. One, I felt that there was a big divide in the historiography of the East India Company. Um, and it was, for me, quite quite clearly split between Western historiographies um, that take the East India Company as the point of perspective or the lens through which to understand you know, empire in Asia um, and, um, and a, a separate... Asian historiography by mostly Asian historians that um, that place the East India Company within the context of the kind of wider political and economic um, uh, uh, context um, of, mm-hmm. of Asia at the time. So uh, looking at the East India Company, uh, you know, through the lens of the Mughal Empire or, um, uh, or you know, Tokugawa, uh, Japan. So uh, for me, there was there was kind of two his separate historiographies, not necessarily in in conversation. You know, every now and then you get a brilliant historian like uh, Sanjay Subramaniam who could you know cross that and integrate those. Mm-hmm. But I, I felt like that hadn't been done for a general history of the East India Company. So it's about bringing those two historiographies together, which were very similar in many ways. They were um, just before I started writing the book. You know, they were both interested in. Uh, empire as a kind of decentered process um if you look at uh, historians of the mughal empire especially asian historians they were looking at the mughal empire not as a kind of centralized structure but as a kind of a network of clients and allies being mobilized by the imperial center um and, and being enfranchised um as a way to uphold mughal authority which i found interesting um uh if you think about rajput princes or even um you know the african city naval power um, and then um, sort of Western historiographies that were looking at the company and 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 the English state as a decentered um, process and looking at um, you know everything from uh, Matthew uh, uh, Braddock's work on um, the English the formation of or English state formation as a kind of uh, as a bundle of networks out in the provinces, uh, mm-hmm. to Phil Withington's idea of corporations and towns being enfranchised, and then all tracing that all the way to the lineage of, uh, of Phil Stern's um, groundbreaking work, mm-hmm. in 2011 on on uh, sovereignty as kind of a bundle of hyphens, as overlapping kind of messy 
uh, a matrix of different uh, um, autonomous bodies. So I thought these these two separate historians were, were doing the same thing, more or less, understanding state and empire and sovereignty in the same way, but not really necessarily being integrated. Um, so, so I kind of set out to, to do that. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, the other one really was being a bit dissatisfied with the direction that those, those historiographies were going, especially those concerned with the English East India Company. So thinking about um, uh, Phil Stern's book, The Company State, which is, you know, it's probably, the, you know, I think the, the, the most groundbreaking work on mm-hmm. the East India Company really ever probably. Um, and, you know, for me, up until Phil Stern's work in 2011, which was just as I finished my master's, um, it, um, uh, you know, but before then, I think the, uh, the research or the historiography had become somewhat stale on the East India Company. And, you know, we were still following that trade to empire narrative and doing lots of exciting work on commerce and trade and the uh, and the company. But, you know, his focus on the companies and political actor, I think, really opened up all these new directions and all these exciting mm-hmm. research that we're seeing now in the field. And it's made study of the company far more of a kind of diverse and interdisciplinary one as well. So that was great. Uh, but, you know, in many ways, his work accidentally, also by looking at the company as a political act- actor, accidentally pushed us in a direction in which we consider the company far more capable than it was. Suddenly the company was this aggressive political a- actor capable of building colonies and an empire and, um, mm-hmm. uh, as early as the the seventeenth century, and, and for me, working having been working on the East India Company for a couple of years by that point, I you know did my undergraduate dissertation, and my by then I just finished my masters, um, and and looking at the sources, I just didn't see that capability. Um, I, I saw the company wanting to be capable in the archives, but I didn't really see the evidence of that. Um, so it may have conceptualized itself as a political actor. Um, one capable of building colonies and, and, and things but um but that success was really elusive so so for me i wanted to kind of to rein in the direction the historically was heading and to say look you know the company may you know may have been a had political ambition in asia earlier than we thought but to to suggest that it that it succeeded is is really in a way to undermine the power um and complexity of the asian states and empires the company interacted with so uh uh, so I wanted to um, uh, change that direction somewhat, um, and, and so so really this this book came from being dissatisfied with the way things were heading, but also building on that new direction. But um, but um, I, I think I, I hope I've done that. But um, absolutely, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Absolutely, and the and the main argument of your book, um, you know, which I think encapsulates this this idea, um, can be summarized, I think, in this quote from your introduction. Uh, and I quote, the English East India companies did not grow outside or at the expense of the Asian states that they came into contact with, but rather flourished within the carapace of their expansive Asian hosts. In this sense, this book emphasizes the Asian genesis of the British Empire, end quote. I was wondering if you could expand on this and talk about how um, this differs from how the company has been discussed in the literature. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, yeah, that, that I mean, for me, that's that's really the key sentence of the whole, the whole book and um it's about for me it was really about most histories of empire in asia uh, uh, british empire in asia or european asia really uh, european empire in asia um, or the east india company um they tend to take europe as the starting point um and that's partly influenced by the archive in which you know the kind of dominant leather bound tomes are 
orders uh, and, and dispatches from London out to the factories and settlements in Asia. And so you get a very kind of skewed um, a perspective of, of where power lays within the East India Company and who's calling the shots and who's in the driving seat. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, I think if you, if you shift away from the official correspondence and you look more at the kind, try and build a sort of almost like live picture of what was going on in these factories and in these uh, company settlements. And you can do that by looking at, you know, things like um, memorandum and, and private papers and even factory diaries, which although to a degree official in that they're often dispatched back, still record the kind of daily life and record dissenting opinions and bring in witnesses and uh, this is where we really capture the the kind of non-European voice in 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 the company's development. So it was mm-hmm. about kind of rejecting the official correspondence and diving more into these kind of more interesting documents. And and you know I found I found that that Europe is is by no way the starting point for understanding how the company develops in the seventeenth and early eighteenth century. Instead, in fact, I think um, you know power lays not not in London uh, or Amsterdam. But really, it's um, in, um, you know, it's in it's in Agra or it's in uh, Murshidabad or, um, you know, it's in um, uh, Banton or, 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 you know, those sorts of places. It's it's mm-hmm. with the interactions between the company's servants who are in terms of communication, um, uh, you know, years from home and um, and. Um, are not really being. I, I I can't remember which historian said it. Possibly Phil Stern, but you know, uh, there's there's no you know they've described it as a great you know hierarchy or chain linking the outposts all the way to London. Yeah, that that doesn't really exist in in any sense. And they're kind of doing their own thing. Uh, you know, mm. every few years there's some kind of loose intervention. But they're, they're, so there's kind of these autonomous actors uh, thousands of miles from from Europe. Uh, interacting with far more dominant and, and capable forces like the Mughal Empire or, um, uh, you know, the uh, Sultanate of um, of Jambi or, or, you know, Tokugawa, Japan. And, and mm-hmm. that creates an entirely different dynamic from this is what London wants and, and you know, we must build the colony of Bombay. Um, actually, that's not, you know, how it happens. Um, you know, development comes as a result of interactions between powerful Asian elites and very subservient um uh, Europeans who are really uh, uh, running around doing whatever they want, and, and therefore, you know, the the genesis of empire, of of course, to an extent, you know, empire comes, uh, you know, from a kind of domicile context. You know, um, England had or Europe had particular ambitions and expansionist tendencies, but but the shape of empire, the way it develops and and the way it looks and and operates, um, is engineered entirely through what. To Asian states and empires would permit and allow. So for me, I saw this, you know, I did see a kind of expansive East India Company. The East India Company in 1600 is not the same as it is in 1750. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it has developed and it's developed in an expansive way. But then, uh, you know, there's for me, that wasn't mutually exclusive to uh, a, a resilient and, and expansive Asian uh, state and empire um, uh, um kind of landscape and, and we see you know the the period in which the company is developing expanding is also the height of Mughal expansion um or you know it's the height of um you know uh, the expansion of the sultanate of Golconda in 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 central and southern India so how can mm-hmm. these two things be expanding at the same time and I don't even feel like there was an answer 
uh, for that. So I thought I I feel like if we came away from London and looked at what was going on within the local Asian context, then that answer would become uh, uh, clearer. And, and and I think that you know by looking or placing the company's expansion within the expansion of the Mughal Empire, for example, these things are not you know mutually exclusive, but in many ways they're dependent of one another. The the reason the company expand so quickly in India is because it is facilitated by an uh, you know a, a domestic imperial power the Mughal Empire that wants mm-hmm. powerful and capable subordinate actors to uphold its own authority you know not for a second would the Mughal Empire have tolerated a European colony in its midst any more than England would have tolerated a Mughal colony um, you know on the bank of the Thames unless mm-hmm. that was wanted unless that was something that was facilitated, thinking like the Hanseatic League in in Europe in the sort of 15th uh, and 16th centuries. Um, in many ways, it's a bit like that. You know, the Tudor state wanted uh, a, ger- a kind of vibrant German commercial actor in its midst to help the cloth trade. Well, it's the same in, in Mughal India. Uh, the Mughal authorities want a kind of loyal subordinate um, actor that's going to import, you know, tons of silver and gold and uh, you know defend maritime borders and pay taxes and drive trade and economic activity um, mm-hmm. and the company is willing to do that because it's far more uh, profitable and successful strategy than rampaging around asia uh, spending money on on ships and um and, and on wars and i think that's very much the dynamic that we see Great, thank you. Uh, and yeah, I, th- I thought it was a really convincing argument, and you know, came through throughout your book. So thank you for laying that out for us. Um, now, could you talk about why you chose to end the story in 1750? If I'm not wrong, this points to an important argument you're trying to make about the history of the of the company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, this was this was um, this was on purpose, and it was um, I think a somewhat controversial thing to do, ending a book on. British Empire in Asia, when uh, almost uh, almost every I think book at that point had really began from the seventeen fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, this is the seventeen fifty seven is a very famous and and really since I I'd say um, contemporary times has really been taken as the point in which the British Empire began. Um, seventeen fifty seven, the Battle of Plassey, when the company um, uh, uh, defeats the Nawab of Bengal and assumes uh, or begins to assume political power in in Bengal, um, Odisha and uh, Bihar. And I think by purposely um, ending the book there, uh, I mean, I was making a point that, you know, the empire did not begin uh, at the Battle of Plassey, but uh, that kind of empire, that kind of imperial expansion, Europe, the, the projection of European military and fiscal power over the non-European world, that's not the empire I'm talking about in the early modern period. That, for me, is a slightly more distinct, for, certainly in the British context, <coughs> excuse me, that's certainly more mm-hmm. of a kind of distinct later modern version of empire that we see in Asia. For most of this period, for the century and a half uh, um, which the book discusses, empire for, for Britain in, in Asia was a very subordinate suppliant process which fed off the power um but but limited or contained itself within the structures of sovereignty of Asian states. So the, these mm. are, in, in a way, um, I think there there are massive continuities before the pre in the pre plassy period and the post plassy period. I don't think it's the jarring transformative date that historians for a couple of centuries now have, have convinced us it has been. This kind of 
trade to empire narrative. The company is a peaceful trading uh, corporation. And then Battle of Plassey happens in 1757 and suddenly it's a great imperial power. That's not the case. But mm. I think we can underplay the, the Battle of Plassey as well. What happens after 1757 is a, is a, it is by the sort of late 18th, early 19th centuries that there has been a, a, a kind of transformative shift in the company's strategy towards war and imperial expansion. So in a way, by stopping at 1750, I was highlighting the fact that this early modern uh, company development was one that happened within the Asian state and imperial structures that existed. The company worked within them, it contained itself, and it derived much of its power and its and its economic success from um, from Asian, uh, pre-existing Asian um frameworks and, and contexts. So um, the story of the company's development is a story of the power and success of Asian states and, and empires. After 1750, um, uh, that, 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 that strategy, that, that dynamic takes a long time to, um, to dissipate. Um, and, and really, even by the, by the sort of 1780s, the company is still overly reliant on um, certainly post Mughal structures of power to operate within, you know, the, the kind of, um, you know, the version of indirect rule, uh, acknowledging mm-hmm. the Mughal emperor's sovereignty, um, you know, adopting aspects of Mughal culture. Um, and yet there has been a, a shift to more imperial ideologies. Um, and there's a much greater concentration of military and fiscal resources that are projected in India. So, so in, in, you know, in ending in 1750, I was making the point that, um, that this earlier period is a different dynamic. The success of the company is really about its ability to uh, play nice and subordinate and serve the interests of Asian elites as much as London shareholders or European investors. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, So for the listeners who may not be familiar with this period, uh, I was wondering if you could talk about what distinguishes early modern states, economics, international order from what we call the modern world. Um, Perhaps we could limit this to Europe and Asia, which are the focus of your study. Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, So I I think, I mean, it ties a little bit into the, 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 what I was just talking about there is that, um, um, and I think a lot of uh, historians of empire would would probably put sort of the later 18th century as the the cutting off point, you know, between discussing early modern British Empire in Asia and then its more modern um, uh, successor. Uh, uh, for for me, really, um, you know, uh, I think sometimes this can be overstated, but I think probably mm-hmm. picking out the kind of single biggest distinguishing factor, I think, is that tendency to. Um, to centralize um so i think the early modern um the early modern world um if we think about states and economies um and certainly the international order it's far more complex it's far more diverse um and just thinking about england for example um and let's say the mughal empire um is that um you know as as the research of the past 20 years has shown these are highly decentered um, structures of sovereignty and power. So in Engl- in the English state, you know, it's that you've got uh, networks of uh, uh, corporations and boroughs and towns and charters, um, universities. These are all operating as autonomous actors um, mm-hmm. uh, tied together in a kind of royal framework of power. Um, but, you know, look at the English, uh, um, the beginning of English overseas um, 
uh, activity, it's outsourced by the crown to a to a to a whole group of different um, actors. So you've got the kind of um, even just the passage trying to get to India, the Northwest um, Passage Company and and the Muscovy Company and the Levant Company. These companies are formed by private individuals in conjunction with the state to try and open up passages to India and to trade to the mm-hmm. Ottoman Empire and, and the Russian Tsar and eventually to colonise Northeast Atlantic. Um, it's very rarely done directly by the state itself, partly because the state can't afford to uh, uh, to commit seriously to overseas enterprise because England in the 70, early 17th century is quite an impoverished marginal state. Um, but partly because that's the way in which... Um, um, you know the state operates in the early modern period. It's very decentered. Um, sub, uh, autonomous yet subordinate actors draw constitutional authority from the centre, from the crown, but mm-hmm. act rather autonomously and pursue their kind of individual enterprises. Doesn't mean that they are not connected and integrated. Um, certainly are. You know that's the massive role networks and private networks play to in, kind of integrate English overseas activities, whether it's Asia or the Atlantic. But these things are being pursued rather autonomously. Um, and I think, you know, that we get that from the Mughal Empire as well, obviously. So if we look at, there are obviously the massive military interventions of the imperial centre, uh, thinking about Aurangzeb's campaigns in the, you know, in, in central India and down to the um, Muslim sultanates. Um, but once the major military campaigns are done, and I'm thinking in 1688, uh, the Mughal conquest of the Golconda Sultanate, um, immediately those uh, territories are provided with autonomy. Uh, Aurangzeb declares that their governments and constitutions shall remain the same as they were before the conquest. Um, mm. And, you know, elites are placed in positions of power and given relative autonomy and usually retain much of their rights beforehand. And then those uh, new territories are eventually enfranchised with more powers and then utilised to uphold Mughal authority in those areas. So, um you know, and I'm just thinking about Mughal naval power, which again is about utilizing subordinate actors to do the centre's bidding, whether it's the European East India companies or, or um, you know, the city um, uh, based on the west coast of uh, India. So these states are operating the same way. They're highly decentered. They operate or power uh, and economic power is actualized through. Um, in franchising and utilising a whole network of different subordinate actors. Um, and I think that's really what highlights the early modern period or distinguishes it from the modern period. And I think much of the modern period, especially we're thinking about um, um, Europeans in Asia and, and with the origins of empires, that what you get from, certainly from the late 18th century, um, mm-hmm. is um, an attempt to uh, centralise a lot of this um uh, um, a lot of these dynamics. So thinking in terms of the English East India Company begins to lose its autonomous status. Um, Parliament begins to exercise more oversight. Um, uh, thinking of the various um, India Acts that are passed in the late 18th century. Um, a governor general is appointed to oversee um, all of the various presidencies. Um, the company loses control eventually of its trade, its monopoly. Um, and the you know there's a there's a uh, you know a board of control established by parliament, um, and and therefore gradually the company's uh, autonomy is eroded, and the British state, far more mm-hmm. capable than its predecessor, the English state, steps in and exercises a greater degree of um, 
of uh, central control. So I think that's kind of the defining feature of the modern period. How successful that centralization is, of course, is is arguable. And I, I think that well into the 19th century, um, the uh, British presence in India is still you know, highly decentralized, but it's the attempt to centralize, to legislate, to intervene, and to undermine the autonomy of these, these in a way, leftovers from the early modern period um, is an interesting one. And actually, I, I read a, recently a, a really interesting book by, um, by Andrew Phillips and Jason Sharman, which is uh, called Outsourcing Empire. And it does a really good job of, of, of showing the early modern world and its distinction from, from the later modern period of being one that was uh, in, empire was almost entirely... Um, autonomous from from europe um it doesn't doesn't let empire off it doesn't let um it, it off in a way that suggests that um you know europeans are not fault for what happens it's that the strategies mm-hmm. and the uh, and the processes of european expansion are very much in the hands of these in, in independent individual associations and corporations and and companies so i think that that creates a far more complex but almost in a far way more exciting and diverse international early uh, order in the early modern period and um i think a lot of that is is eroded by the early 19th century and i think there's a more homogenous european presence across the world and um and i i think that that's uh, in a way that's quite tragic mm-hmm. thank you that's that's really helpful thank you for laying that out um so you begin the book talking about Robert Fleetwood, a company servant who was married to Marjorie Winter, a Eurasian daughter of an Indo-Portuguese couple. You write that Fleetwood's experience in the Godwari Delta illustrates that, quote, the world of the company servant in Asia was a culturally amorphous and politically entangled one, end quote. Could you expand on this and tell us why you decided to begin the book with Fleetwood? You keep creating my Look back to me, and I'm like, well, that's that's good writing. I don't really like that. <laughs> it is. It is. I could use some of that writing now. Um, um, yeah, I thought Fleetwood was a really interesting place to start because um, um, it, it's interesting. I th- there's no there's no extant primary sources on Fleetwood. I had to piece hmm. him together in his interesting complex world through various um appearances in the official record um and then i could i found one helpful private paper then uh, a memorandum i should say not a private paper um which really gave us a good glimpse into this world that he had assembled um Mm -hmm. yeah so i decided to begin with with fleetwood because he really represented um the way in which um europeans could flourish in india only by crossing uh Crossing boundaries really is a good way to put it. Not just um, not just political and, and, and diplomatic boundaries, but uh, social and cultural ones as well, and even linguistic and, and sexual boundaries. And here was a a chief of um, the company's factory um, in just outside um, um, Masalapatam on, on the Coromandel coast, and um, you know the Godavari Delta was this kind of um, quite affluent. Uh, commercially vibrant um, region of of, of um, the Sultanate, the Golconda Sultanate. So he his main job was to you know order um, textiles. This is a very textile rich area of the coast, um, and one of the key areas uh, which the company exported 
textiles, uh, not just to Europe, but also um, to Southeast Asia. So um, he had quite an important job. So he's an English official. And yet what happens is over the course of about a decade, um, he starts to um, farm uh, or or lease the uh, surrounding towns and villages of this company factory. And Mm -hmm. within a decade, he is essentially acting as the um, Golconda governor of uh, this kind of this big kind of um, uh, um, kind of chiefdom in a way. He's got this. He's assembled this collection of towns and villages who, with whom he he uh, uh, raises revenue, taxation. Uh, he has a judicial responsibility as well. Um, and it's interesting, really interesting. I thought, well, why is this happening? And part of the answer, I think, is because he's become culturally integrated into the Godvari Delta in a way that. Um, hadn't yet seen at that point um so he so his indo-portuguese uh a wife is actually the daughter of an old governor of madras um an interesting guy himself um and the he has become he clearly lives very comfortably in a in a world of partnerships with uh local merchants and um mughal elites and golconda chiefs and um he mm-hmm. is um you know dining with them he's um sailing around with them he's going into business with them and he's got this kind of expansive indo-portuguese family living in the area so at one point when when the company order him to kind of you know hand these towns over uh, what do you think you're doing assembling this kind of private domain um and the, the guy sent to sent to do this is like oh we can't this guy is so well enmeshed in in his surroundings his family is so so numerous and he's He's got all these associations and, and businesses that we can't really just kind of pull him out. So, um, uh, so this it's it, and then at one point the Sultan comes and to to kind of travel in the region, and it's it's with Fleetwood he stays, not necessarily because he's the English chief, but also because he becomes this really important um, Golconda official responsible for raising revenue and maintaining um, law and order in this part of the sultan's domains and um i thought it was a, just a really interesting rich dynamic it shows the way in which the company wasn't operating as a as a as a um a kind of foreign body um, mm-hmm. um and that it was really integrated in in a really messy way so this wasn't the company this was a an individual company servant doing it without the company's uh, authority or knowledge and when he's found out the company um uh instead of just um undoing the whole thing they actually take over the towns from him um and carry on acting as the kind of golconda official in that region and they allow uh, fleetwood to retain control of one of his villages where his family lives so um mm-hmm. it's not that the company this isn't corruption this isn't wayward servants um private interest as the historiography would say this was company servants integrating into this cultural and social world acquiring political and commercial power and then the company uh, utilizing that to their benefit so it's this entangled messy integration but we cannot spit uh, what the fleetwood example shows is we can't speak of um the company operating outside of these um local frameworks of power mm-hmm. um and they're they're inside of it and that's the way they flourish and they succeed and the company's presence in the godavari delta is is very successful it's one of the key areas of the textile trade for the company it's because of people like fleetwood um integrating and immersing themselves um you know marrying local women or indo-portuguese women uh, maintaining um 
very, very close social and commercial relationships with local elites, um, becoming an important part of the Golconda world as much as the world of the company. So that by the late 17th century, those two worlds are, you know, the lines between them are really blurred and porous. And, mm-hmm. um, and that said, so the Fleetwood was an example, was a really good case study to open the book to, to show the reader that we can't think of these things separately. Absolutely. Um, and just a quick follow-up, um, you know, thinking about Fleetwood and Marjorie Winter, mm. um, I was wondering how, you know, you would characterize the, you know, sexual relations and marriage in this period, uh, you know, rather than viewing it in romanticized ways, as yeah. I've kind of read some places. I'm assuming there were diverse marriage arrangements, formal, informal, and sexual relations, coercive, non-coercive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, so many wonderful historians have done some great work on this. Uh, you know, David Gosh, I think, is uh, um, mm-hmm. is a fantastic scholar uh, for this. But um, but but yeah, the I mean, uh, Alison Games has done lots of work on this, especially in the Japanese context. But a- absolutely, I mean, it was you know we need to disabuse ourselves of the notion that you know these these Europeans fell in love uh, with uh, local women and it was, they were building happy families um and that 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 tended to be the uh you know the the exception um i think it was far more common uh, I, I first of all these marriages were were not uh, you know uh, european marriages they they were often temporary um and um whilst far more um company servants actually stayed and lived in india than we actually suspected and we often think of this have this narrative of them going over to india marrying getting richer then leaving and, and going back to england to buy a parliamentary seat maybe later on but in this earlier period most of them actually stay and live here and 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 um um and 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 they're not as transient as we think however mm-hmm. the the marriages so even the official marriages they're are they're, they're temporary associations um and they're not recognized by the company um so um but that's but really more common is um um, liaisons of a kind of sexual nature that are not married that, that you know they're not marital there's no there's no legal rights these are temporary unions often often violent um what we would define as mm. as i think um as rightly so as as violent and and uh, also uh, a fair share of rape as well um so especially in the company factories in japan for example uh you know local women were uh, almost treated as property and um, bought and sold and, and and even passed around the various um, East India Company servants and, and and many of these were underage as well so it's a kind of really um, kind of a really kind of violent uh, uh, kind of um, interaction that these European men are having with um, mm-hmm. with local women um, and then kind of somewhere in the middle of these um, uh, I mean the later the later kind of lexicon we use for the kind of later 18th 19th centuries you know mistresses the indian mistress um uh, in this earlier period in the 17th century um they are um um usually um women with an elite status from a kind of wealthy indian or indo-portuguese family and mm-hmm. uh, the union is driven by kind of mutual interest so for the family of the woman it's usually as a way to gain um or to consolidate relationships with the east india company um and they usually follow a, a pre-existing kind of commercial business relationship between that european individual and the the indo or indo-portuguese uh, family um mm-hmm. and on the on the company servants behalf it's usually as a way to 
expand their interest with this particular group. So the the marriages or or the um or the uh, interactions between company servants and local women have a kind of commercial um, or patronage um, motive behind them. So yeah, there's a whole range uh, going from the kind of informally married um, all the way through to kind of violent sexual encounters in which um, local women are kind of powerless um, and used almost as property. So we have to think very diversely. We have to disabuse ourselves that this is a kind of William Dallenpool, you know, white moon girls. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the one I was thinking about. Yeah, love. and that that is the dominant narrative. I think all we have, and um, but but if we, all you need to do is peek at the records of the Jap- uh, factories in Japan to see that that's that's really not the case. Um, and a lot of it is just sexual um, as well. Um, so. Yeah. Um, you know these these small factories and settlements have hardly any European women in them. So at one point, the company writes to um, to its servants at Bombay to encourage the European soldiers there to to marry and settle down with Indian women as a way to help the settlement grow. Because there's you know they're not getting European women, so um, you should encourage them to to procreate and and drive a kind of demographic revolution in those settlements so Mm. there's always also being you know manipulated at higher levels within the company itself as like a strategy for the company to grow its presence so yeah i think um a diverse set of arrangements is a good way to think about it absolutely thank you that's that's really helpful um so would the rulers in India uh, have seen these English company servants in the same way they saw the Portuguese or French uh, at this time? And how does uh, the East India dynamic in India compare with, say, the VOC in Japan? I ask because uh, something I really enjoyed about your work is how you're making these comparisons throughout the book. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really good question because I think it's a complex one as well. And also, I think because of the sources... Um, quite a difficult one to get uh, a full answer on i I think two things really um the first is that there are there is evidence that we do see that um that asian rulers often approach the europeans as a kind of um as a as a group as a kind of homogenous kind of uh, uh, blob in a way and what so what we get by the turn of the 18th century are the farmers the charters that the mughal emperor is granting uh, is often kind of the same for all Europeans. It becomes is this is this is a kind of a well trod path that that they're not tailored to individual European East Indian companies. It's like the companies may do this, and he's and the the Mughal emperors are kind of treating them in a kind of same way. I think that's on purpose. I, I think the the Mughal emperor wants to reduce Europeans to a kind of uh, a kind of vassalage. Uh, um, uh, relationship where they have the same rights and could be used in the same way, partly because they they provide the same service. They import silver and gold, and they they mm-hmm. act, they, they act like maritime actors, um, and therefore they're treated quite similarly. Um, and I think in outside of the Indian subcontinent, for example, in the Indonesian archipelago, I think um, where there is more of a um, antagonistic relationship with Europeans and even the English East India Company are acting more aggressively and attempting to establish their dominance then then they are often at, uh, you know looked upon as the same whether it's the portuguese mm-hmm. the dutch or, or the english then the, there's you know 
they have to be kind of resisted and and um there are external actors attempting to compromise kind of indigenous uh structures so there is a tendency but i but i think that's that's a that does a disservice to asian uh rulers and elites uh suggesting that somehow that you know they're, they're kind of um far less complex and, and too too simple to understand the differences um uh, and i think that's a narrative that's often been pushed you know the the europeans refer to as the hat people blah blah yeah they were in a way but um you know the mughal empire for example was far too sophisticated to not understand the differences between for example the dutch and the english the english were painfully aware of the comparisons that were often made between them and the dutch and um the english always being seen as the weaker of the two um and the mughal empire was, was well aware of this and would often try and play europeans off against one another um the relationship that the uh, you know mughal empire had with the portuguese for example that had well established colonies a significant military presence in the early 17th century created a radically different dynamic than the english in a way the english mm-hmm. are successful because they're seen as powerless by the Mughal Emperor. They are not a problem. So they're welcomed into Bengal, for example. Uh, they're welcomed into Surat. With the Portuguese, uh, the Mughal Empire is, is well aware that they can't be subordinated and brought into the Mughal imperial system. In fact, they're treated as an external antagonist. And, you know, by the early 17th century, the Mughal Empire is dealing with them in a confrontational way. Um, so for example, the conquest of Hooghly in, in Bengal is... Um, the Portuguese are just far more of a threat. The English are not. Mm-hmm. So uh, the English are powerless, and in a way, that's that's the strength that they have to play to because it allows them to integrate and enjoy the kinds of rights within the Mughal Empire in terms of customs, free trade, and and things like that that the Portuguese can't access because they're seen as too powerful and too dangerous. So um, I think it does uh, Asian states and empires a disservice to suggest that they can't really distinguish or that they treat Europeans all the same. Um, uh, I don't think that's the case. It's certainly not the case in, I mean, like you, you mentioned some of the comparisons in Japan, for example, in that, you know, the uh, Tokugawa uh, Bakufu, the shogun, is 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 really good at um, at finding useful Europeans and treating the less useful Europeans with disdain. So, by uh, so so the Dutch really uh, the English and Dutch are really in in many ways uh, similar in Japan. Um, in that they're trying to establish a kind of Japanese Southeast Asian commercial network, and um, it doesn't really work. But what the Japanese, what the Dutch are fantastic at is then pivoting towards China and understanding that the key to unlocking Japanese trade is is the Chinese silk trade, um, mm-hmm. and the English can't do that um, mostly because they don't have the 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 resources that the Dutch do. And the Tengal Shogun understands that. And so the Dutch are rewarded and franchised and the English, um, as well as the Portuguese and other Europeans are eventually um, are forced out of Japan because they, they, you know, they can't do anything that the Dutch don't already do and do better. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think there's a, there's a really, there's a, there's a really good sense. I, I mean, and some of the sources are really clear about this. So in uh, Banton, for example, in uh, on the island of Java in Southeast Asia, the English are so uh, make a conscious effort to um, to to utilize the indigenous hatred of the Dutch. The um, I mean, when the Dutch rock up in Banton in, in 1598, they they bomb the port because 
it's Sultan won't let them trade there because the Portuguese are, are quite well entrenched. Um, mm-hmm. And when they come back a few years later, um, you know, they're they're allowed to to, to trade there, but they're not. The, but the indigenous uh, Javanese hate the Dutch, and the English play up to this, and um, you know, they create a song that they go around singing in the streets. Uh, you know that. Um, you know, hate the Dutch and love the English sort of thing. So yeah, they're they're very conscious that that they're seen as very differently. And um, but you know, that's I think something that is facilitated by the Asian states and elites that the Europeans operate with. That it all brings something different to the table, and those differences can be exploited. Great, thank you so much. That was that was a that was a big. Uh cluster of questions there so thank you so much for for answering that um so your book is split into four sections i'll I'll just list them briefly uh for the listeners part one is weakness and adaptation part two is subordination and expansion part three is limitations and devastation and uh part four is empire um with that out of the way i was wondering if you could begin discussing part one by talking about the false starts uh of the company in india in the early 17th century something i found interesting is that rather than viewing the company as a monolithic entity uh there seems to have been an often tense dynamic between the corporate and metropolitan authorities on the one hand and company servants in india on the other yeah so um one of the things i wanted to do one of the things that I, I found is that very few histories of the company start at the beginning. Um, they often start, as I said, it's from 1757. But those that deal with the earlier period even then don't start at, in 1600 when the company is formed. Um, a lot of them, so for example, Phil Stone's excellent book, The Company State, actually begins really from 1658 when the company get a, a charter from Oliver Cromwell um, to, to become a permanent joint stock corporation. This is the beginning of the company that we know. But actually, there's still, you know, half a century of, of a really interesting history. And I think having then studied it and researched it, I realized that I think, you know, it, it most people don't study it because it just seems as, as you know, a, a series of catastrophes that the company then kind of leave behind them. But really, mm-hmm. it's the, the kind of the failures of the early 17th century, which in a way shape the strategies and the dynamic pursued by the company in from the later 17th century onwards, they kind of learn from that failure and that, and they play into their weakness and and they place themselves within local um, frameworks of power and economic uh, uh, um, uh, commercial power as well. So, um, uh, so, so yeah. So, um, really, um, the company formed in 1600, and its first decade is a is a very successful decade. Um, and the company sends f- fleets that are often enjoying something like two, three hundred percent profit. Um, they uh, participate in the spice trade in in Southeast Asia, and they begin to um, have a presence in India, uh, in Surat on on the west coast in in Gujarat. So um, it's seen as rather successful. And then, um, um, and, and you know, for, because it's a small corporation, it's built really um um really as a kind of as a kind of corporate institutional structure all of the mm-hmm. merchants know each other um the investors are <coughs> excuse me the investors are are you know all living in the same part of london and they you know there's a strong relationship with the crown and this is something that uh, um 
Rupali Mishra has written a book recently, that A Business of State, that shows this relationship between the early company and the crown as being quite strong. Um, and, and therefore, it's kind of quite a kind of um, a closed corporate enterprise. And, um, you know, it's very much pushing English interests overseas in Asia, you know, pursuing diplomatic um, relationships that help you know, in a way that are very anti-Iberian, anti-Spanish and Portuguese. And um, it's about exporting English woolens and finding new markets for them. Um, and uh, and then really what, what we have is, is <laughs> by the second decade of the 17th century, a number of things start to happen. Uh, one is that the company realises that uh, um, it, it's not really succeeding in upholding English interests. They can't find those markets for English woolens. What the English don't realise is no one in, in kind of tropical Southeast Asia wants to wear English woolens. Um, <laughs> they, they can't compete to, to Chinese or Japanese silk or the kind of luxurious Indian calicos. It's, it's, it's just no comparison. Um, and um, and there's, there's, they find they have to just they have to export English silver um, if they and they have to pay a cold hard cash if they want anything. So um, and those those uh, they they are too they're too weak to take on England's enemies in Asia, whether it's the Spanish or the Portuguese, and increasingly the Dutch as well. And therefore, acting as a kind of uh, you know as a as a loyal and subordinate arm of the English state is it's actually it's it's harming the east india company it wants to be free mm. to trade and to you know cross kind of boundaries and to you know to work with actors that the english state probably wouldn't work with so um uh, it's starting to struggle and um it's it's the heady days of you know hundreds of thousands of pounds of investment uh, are starting to dry up Europe is undergoing a, a bit of an economic crisis by the 1620s, 1630s. Uh, there's a whole different bunch of reasons for this. There's the kind of inflation crisis that partly brought in by the influx of Spanish silver. Uh, there's a crisis of liquidity and, and, and credit. Um, and the, the company is finding it very difficult. There's a 30 years war raging as well. Uh, and the company find it difficult to attract investment. Um, the returns start to dwindle, and um, the company embroils itself in a in a unofficial war with a Dutch East India Company for access to the spice trade. The Dutch VOC is a far bigger enterprise. Its capital is massive. It has the um, the infrastructure, the ships, and 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 the troops to entrench itself in Asia in a way that the company can't. So it's very quickly on on the end of a losing war with the Dutch. Um, it can't attract the investment it could 20 years ago its profits are declining and it it's it's the crown it's its relationship with the crown is strained because it can't export english woolens and it's um accused of draining the english country of its silver by exporting it all overseas so um it, it really uh by 16 late 1620s it, it's the the success the early success has faded and the company is actually a struggling enterprise in Asia, and that creates a lot of um, uh, tension between the company's metropolitan authorities, whether it's the, the uh, governor and, and committees that that are the executive body of the company, or the court proprietors, the shareholders that vote on issues, or whether it's the crown or even parliament. Uh, or even the English public, um, um, the company, um, what they want on the one hand and what the company realise it needs to do to succeed, such as creating cross-cultural relationships and jumping into 
bed with those people that the English state wouldn't and um, avoiding conflict with England's enemies and um, all of this stuff. Um, it creates this tension of, of, of who is driving the company's development. Is it company servants or, or is it metropolitan authorities back home? But really, by the mid-17th century, the company has lost its charter. Uh, England or the British Isles are gripped in constitutional crisis and civil war. Um, the economic situation hasn't got much better. And it creates this kind of vacuum where the company has almost collapsed at home. Um, and it, so much so that by 1657, it, it, it's, it puts the company up for sale. Um, the company puts itself up to sale for, I think, something like £14,000, which is a kind of pittance for half a century of, of, of trade in Asia. And <clears throat> so while it's collapsing almost at home, um, overseas, the companies are sort of left adrift to kind of do what they want. Um, and they, they can't get the money and the shipping from Europe. So they turn to local elites to help drive not just the company's trade, but their own trade. Most of the people who work for the company are out in Asia are also feathering their own nests. And um, they can't, they, they realise that you know, Europe is not going to help them. Um, so for uh, between 1619 and 1621, for example, almost no ships are sent from Europe to, to the factories in Asia. Um, and in some factories, it's actually starving. They can't even buy rice. So what we get is a general shift in those middle decades of the 17th century towards company servants doing what they want. Um, and they're creating private networks of trade in partnership with Indian uh, elites. They're marrying into elite families to open up uh, access to local patronage, cultural as well mm -hmm. as political. They are going out and farming like Robert Fleetwood, uh, whole villages and towns to raise revenue and using that revenue to invest in trade and become wealthy. Um, and and we've got this one one chap, um, Kogan, who goes out to India around 1630s and he sees this, uh, uh, what he calls this, you know, this monster without a head. So everyone's doing whatever they want. There's no <laughs> corporate culture. There's no direction. There's no central control. Uh, and he describes it as kind of an absolute nightmare. Um, but within that nightmare, what's actually happened is there's been really a transfer, a shift of power from from Europe, from whether it's the corporate corporation of the East India Company or the crown or the shareholders to servants out in Asia and the networks and the partnerships that they've created there. Those partnerships, those cross-cultural networks are driving the company's development. And it looks like a nightmare from London, but actually what's happening is it's creating these very enduring, very well entrenched economic and political um, partnerships that are yielding the kinds of um, profits and political and judicial rights that the company have never enjoyed. So, for example, 1640, a band of servants without any knowledge from, from headquarters in London um, single-handedly established the city of... Uh, uh, well, uh, uh, the factory of Fort, of Fort St. George uh, at, at Madras Patnam, which is a, a, um, just uh, south of the, uh, down on the Coromandel coast. And they build a fort and they trade customs free and they uh, invite Indo-Portuguese uh, weavers and Indian dyers. And suddenly by the 1660s, they've got probably single, single most profitable and important settlement in the company's history. And the company you know, disagree with it and they try and stop it and they try and starve it of funds, but they can't because it's almost entirely built purely on the relationship between individual company servants there and the local elites that have all the 
all the money and all the power and all the patronage. And the company can't do much about it. And there's, there's a massive tension there. And, and at one point, mm-hmm. the company try and try and um, disenfranchise Madras. Um, and Madras rebels and is independent for about three years. It's taken over by a kind of coalition of Europeans and, and Indians. And the company have to get a proclamation from King uh, uh, Charles II, send out a fleet of warships, and only then, after three years, do they regain control of Madras. So this this cross cultural these cross cultural networks have driven the company's development to such an extent that 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 the English state or its domestic metropolitan authorities just really don't have control of the way the company's developed anymore. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. And I think you've addressed my next question about Madras. So perfect. Thank you. Um, So skipping to uh, the next question, um, in parts two and three, uh, you explore two contrasting political and social dynamics in Bengal on the Indian subcontinent um, and the island of Sumatra in modern-day Indonesia that company officials had to adapt to. Could you talk about what looking at these two case studies uh, together um, tells us about the entrenchment of the company's presence in Asia in the 17th century? Yeah, uh, certainly. I mean, I came from uh, I came to the study of the East India Company through Sumatra. I, um, I just felt like no one was okay. doing any work on it really um, in this period. Most people that working on Sumatra or, or Europeans in Sumatra were looking at the later Dutch period, and I just felt it was completely neglected. And uh, and so that's kind of really okay. And I, I found that the the, the sources on um, on Sumatra were just so exciting and so rich, and um, and and. And, and so that's I thought this would make a good comparison because you know the my argument that the company generally was accommodated and contained by Asian states and elites within existing structures of power um, is a nice kind of non-violent narrative and um, it's too clean and 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 whilst the company generally did subordinate themselves and did act according to the interests and demands of um of the asian elites that they they had to work with and for um it doesn't mean that there was an entire absence entire entire absence of violence and coercion and and conquest and that's far from it even within the mughal context for example this conflict and um in in the 1680s it spills out into war between uh, the government of bengal um and and the company there um, so conflict is a part of it, but I wanted to, to to really, in a way, by looking at Sumatra to to show that Europeans in Asia were violent and coercive in this period. It, it you know this is not a sanitized new argument to suggest otherwise. Um, there is violence and coercion; it's happening uh, in Asia, um, mm-hmm. maybe not so much in India uh, in this period. Uh, so I wanted to focus on that, and, and 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 but in doing that, then I also wanted to reinforce my argument that. Um, that the company sought to work within powerful Asian frameworks, but not all states in Asia were powerful. And when they weren't mm-hmm. powerful and they couldn't provide the, they couldn't accommodate and absorb the company and integrate them and, and dominate them. Um, then the company um, would uh, attempt to, to vice versa. They would attempt to dominate those, those states. So, in a way, it reinforces the argument that um, you know company success came from working within these powerful hosts, 
But uh, when those hosts weren't so powerful, the company were more than happy to use violence and coercion. So even within India, it's not that they um, they subordinated themselves to the Mughal Empire because they were nice people or they wanted to do good. <laughs> they just knew they couldn't take on the Mughal Empire and therefore success could only come from acting subservient and integrating themselves. And Sumatra is a fantastic way to show that if those limits were not placed on Europeans, then Europeans were... Um, would would happily and very quickly revert to violence to get what they wanted. So um, so the Sumatran context really, I think, was a good case study. It, it tells us that the company, um, in in building its own frameworks of power in in Asia, um, uh, it was always disastrous. It's always predicated on violence and extraction and coercion. So those mm-hmm. those places outside of big imperial frameworks, whether it's you know, Japan or, or, or Golconda or the Mughal Empire or Safavid Persia. Um, when the company tried to go its own, for example, on Bombay, um, Bombay was transferred to the company in the 1660s and the company um, held its sovereignty directly. It did not, it was not enfranchised by the Mughal Empire or anyone else. And Bombay was a bit of a disaster for at least most of the late 17th and early 17th century. Um, uh, the directors wanted to make it a good godly Christian colony and it, was, it wasn't anything uh, like that and it struggled to grow and it was eclipsed by its surrounding Asian neighbours and um, it was a disaster uh, repeated attempts to colonise Madagascar disaster these were smaller um, uh, uh, powers um, and the company always reverted to war and conquest and famine and and extraction and the whole thing tended to collapse so in a way success only came from working within the larger powers of uh, of of asia so sumatra um is an interesting case study in the late 17th century because the west coast of sumatra, sumatra itself has a number of large powers on it um for example jambi um on the east coast um the sultanate of banton um ruled the the southern uh, part of sumatra the lampong but on the west coast of Sumatra, it's about two, three hundred miles of coast, which is uh, divided into at least a dozen, maybe more individual powers. Most of them riverine districts with autonomy. Some of them sultanates with kind of regional ambitions. Um, a couple of them pursued a kind of imperial ideology. and um, But generally, they were small powers, unable to accommodate the company's demands for sweeping rights such as customs free trade or the government over entire cities. Demographically, mm-hmm. the West Coast was lightly populated. It had few resources. It was driven almost entirely by the pepper trade. Um, pepper was cultivated up in the highlands, brought down to the coastal plains where it was sold in several ports. Um, so the company's ambition to monopolise the pepper trade, to fortify the few cities of the coast, um, uh, could not be accommodated by these small uh, polities. And um, just within, I'd say, four or five years, the company started to um, to coerce these powers and to extract those rights by force. And it's really brought in, in, I'd say, at least 30 years of war, continuous war on the West Coast. And um, in, in really what's a kind of almost identical to what happens in Bengal in the later 18th century, a mm. kind of cyclical dynamic of war, annexation of territory uh, more responsibility greater costs trade is big, you know vanished this famine uh, it plays out almost exactly as it would in bengal um 
um, almost 100 years later. Um, and by the 1720s, um, the, the company's presence is, is more territorial than commercial. And it has a series of uh, puppet rulers uh, where it, through which it rules indirectly. But in 1719, uh, um, a coalition of, um, of Malay um, um, powers comes together and, and manages to destroy the company's presence there. So, um, uh, and they're expelled from the coast and they return later, but in a very much diminished kind of way. So by comparing, for example, the company's presence in Bengal, Bengal, a wealthy, powerful uh, province of uh, the Mughal Empire, um, mm-hmm. able to absorb the company's presence, provide it with customs, free trade. Um, eventually, after a brief conflict, which the company uh, loses, uh, integrates the company into its political framework, provides it with certain rights. In return, the company helped defeat a rebellion against the Bengali government and the company awarded with even greater rights. They fortify uh, Calcutta and they uh, uh, become the, one of the most important economic actors in Bengal by the early 18th century. Um, Mughal Empire can do that. It's powerful enough. It's wealthy enough. Um, mm-hmm. And the West Coast of Sumatra can't do that. And the consequence is the company then resorts to coercion. So I thought these made two fantastic contrasts. One to say the local context in Asia matter the most. This is this is really what comes from the kind of Asian genesis of empire. We can't look mm-hmm. to Europe to understand the development of European empires because it, it's completely dependent upon the local context. Um, how the company operate in Bengal is entirely different to how it operates in Sumatra. So the development of the company, the origins of the British Empire are, are diverse and they are very much dependent on the various regions of Asia that the company operates. Southeast Asia is entirely different to the uh, subcontinent and the subcontinent is entirely different to um, East Asia, to Japan and China. So I think we need to look at these individual. There's no single narrative for how mm-hmm. the company develops. Uh, so I think these case studies are really important. Often, especially British historians, we just think of India when we think of the East India Company. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, But we can't do that. Great. Thank you so much. Um, So in the next part, part four, you give an alternative reading uh, of how the company became a territorially territorially expansive actor uh, in India in the 18th century. Could you talk about how the Mughal decline and the emergence of British colonial rule in India have been discussed in the literature and how your work challenges these arguments? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean... By the towards the end of the book, then we get to the the fabled mid eighteenth century. Uh, obviously, the eighteenth century in uh, the historiography of India is such a intimidating, massive field of study. Such eminent Indian scholars have weighed in and and carved out, um, you know, their their particular arguments. And so, uh, taking my argument into the mid eighteenth century was was a bit scary, but. Um, and I, I was wondering how how it would work, how you know how the research would would kind of lead that argument. And uh, obviously, this is the period in which, from 1757, the company starts to become a kind of territorial power in India um, on a scale that it hadn't before. So, um, you know, as you know, as my book shows, and other you know other work by other scholars such as Phil Stern show that you know the company had always had a territorial presence, although it had been rather small. Um, mm-hmm. You know, from 1757 onwards, that that changes, and um, by the end of the 18th century, it's obviously 
um, uh, dominant. And that dominance comes at the expense of <clears throat> indigenous powers um, in Asia. Um, and obviously the big narrative um, is that the Mughal Empire declines and then the British Empire rises. And those the, the, the rise of the British Empire is predicated on the decline of the Mughal Empire, and not just not just based on that, but uh, but is uh, is is entwined in that narrative that the East India Company exploited the decline of the Mughal Empire, um, and um, and so I was wondering how my argument would would work in that instance. Um, yeah, you know, some some Indian scholars, you know, very very heavily have stuck to this idea that. Um, the company's expansion was at the expense of the Mughal Empire. And had the company not expanded, uh, the Mughal Empire, you know, uh, may well have carried on. But so, so, uh, so this really for the mid 18th century, it, you know, it's a really, really doubling down on this idea of the company and the company's expansion, Mughal expansion as being mutually exclusive. And the two, there wasn't mm-hmm. room for both um, like there had been in the 17th century. But actually what, what, what I found Looking at the eighteenth century and looking at the uh, looking at the sources is that um, the company is not is not the hammer blow for the Mughal Empire. In many ways, the company's continued expansion within the Mughal framework of power, drawing its its rights through charters and farmans from the imperial centre, um, creating networks of patronage with Mughal elites, um, upholding Mughal authority in the provinces, um, acting subordinately to Mughal economic interests. These things continue on into the mid-18th century. The only big change I could see, really, is that they need to, uh, a lot of these need to be renegotiated at the local level more with the emergence of the successor states in Bengal and in Hyderabad and Aald. Um, And yet, in many ways, the company had always negotiated their powers with local elites. They had been doing that since the mid-17th century. It's just mm. that these elites were more powerful. They were, um, you know, the, the new nawabs of of these successor states, more capable themselves um, of dominating the East India Company. So it's not that the mid 18th century collapsed this dynamic of the company working subordinately inside the Mughal Empire. In fact, for many ways, for me, the mid 18th century, or certainly the first half of the 18th century, this dynamic is is intensified. As the Mughal Empire struggles with external invasion by Persian or Afghan uh, armies and the plunder of Delhi, or by mm-hmm. internal rebellion and its war with the Maharathas, for example, um, and um, certain domestic crises, Jagadir crisis, and declining revenue and imperial overstretch, in many ways it then relies more on its subordinate actors to uphold its authority and increase its revenue. So the Mughal Empire in the first half of the 18th century is is, is willing to concede more rights and more powers to the East India Company. But the mm. East India Company don't have an interest in undermining this dynamic. Why, why would they? They're, this is the the for them it's the the goose that's laying the golden eggs. They don't want to they don't want to end that. So far from undermining the Mughal Empire and exasperating its its crises in the mid 18th century, the company worked hard to uphold Mughal sovereignty because Mughal sovereignty is where their own rights and powers lie. Their rights to customs, free trade, for example, their rights to fortify their settlements and their um, and their factories, um, their rights to uh, enjoy the jurisdiction of surrounding territories. They're drawn still from Delhi. 
Um, and so the company often is invoking Mughal authority and sovereignty in negotiating with the emerging local elites like the new Nawabs of the successor states. So in a way, the mm-hmm. company is working harder to uphold the Mughal Empire um, and it's working overtime as a Mughal subordinate actor to do that. Um, so f- so my argument was that by the mid-18th century, far from the uh, Mughal Empire collapsing and the company engineering or undermining that, it, it, the, in fact, the company is working hard to prop the Mughal Empire up. Um, and um, and I, I saw this, for example, looking at... Um, um, a good example is is once they get the the famous imperial famine in 1717, um, the company consolidate all of its previous charters. Uh, they enjoy even more rights. The new 1717 farmer gives them customs free trade throughout all of India. It grants them new villages and towns in their surrounding settlements. Um, and uh, this is a massive boon. It's hard to quantify just how how much the company gained from this because their commercial operations are expanding anyway. But it looks like it it gave the company a massive advantage over its European rivals as well as over other Asian uh, commercial rivals as well. Um, and it consolidates and entrenches the company's political and jurisdictional um, presence in, in the Mughal Empire as well. So um, in trying to actualize some of these rights from the 1717 for example, Madras gains an additional number of towns that it can uh, uh, in its jurisdiction on the Coromandel coast. But these are um, contested by the um, um, by the Nawabs of um, the Carnatic and Hyderabad as well, um, because as they're emerging and they're putting together their own semi-independent um, states, um, what they want doesn't always align with what Delhi wants, and therefore the company. Not only has it had to negotiate for the farm in, in Delhi, but now it has to renegotiate with several important local elites to make sure it gains possession of those towns and can expand its borders and gets to enjoy its customs-free trade. So there's more layers of negotiation and there are new actors being folded into the equation, but the company is still mm. largely operating as it always had done. In fact, my book argues that the company was doing more to uh, make sure that the overarching system, the Mughal imperial framework that it enjoyed all of its success from, uh, remained strong and robust um, as, as much as possible. So it kind of, you know, this this idea of the Mughal decline, uh, uh, partly undermined by the rise of the company and then the company exploiting this decline to emerge dominant, didn't really, I didn't see that in the sources, I saw quite the opposite. It's the company doing everything it could to make sure the golden goose continued laying the eggs. I think I've flogged that analogy to death. Um, uh, <laughs> but for me, I just didn't understand why would the company, you know, actively um, uh, undo a system that it it that was working so well for it. Great. Thank you. That's such a novel argument and a, and a really interesting one. Um, thank you uh, for laying, laying it out for us. Um, so before we end the discussion uh, of of the company, uh, changing gears slightly, um, we've been discussing how your work fits into the, you know, the, the historiography. But I was wondering if you could tell us, uh, you know, briefly your thoughts on how the company is portrayed in the um, in non-academic conversations or in popular media. Um, in doing so, perhaps you could reflect on William Dalrymple's recent book uh, on the company, The Anarchy. Um, I have not read it, but I believe it's a bestseller, and I think there might even be a, a TV series uh, being made uh, based on it. 
Yeah, as, um, it's an interesting one because I think it, it, we're, right now, obviously, we're seeing a really important point in um, the way in which um, imperial, uh, academic imperial um, research and, and history is 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 relating to its wider public audience um i mean first of all i have to say that i think there's a real disconnect between the two i think that the co- the public conversation about empire and its legacies and um and the way uh we think about it and talk about it is is really being led by uh popular histories uh, it's not, obviously there's nothing wrong with that um i think that's really important but i don't think that uh academic research on empire in the east india company is is reaching a public audience enough and i think that that's leading to um to the public conversation taking a rather dangerous and uh, you know sinister turn in a way you know turning back to the old victorian um you know um discourse of empire as something to be proud of and something deeply embedded in the national fabric and um uh, you know this discourse over greatness and and, and patriotism which mm. is just so anyone who studies empire or has you know in the past 50 years knows it's just such a just such a step back in the way we think of the <laughs> uh, think of empire and the company and so for me it's quite horrifying what's going on at the moment um and i feel like in in many ways academic historians looking at empire and company really are partly to blame in not reaching out to a wider audience sooner enough or, or, or more. So I think there's a lot of work to do um, uh, uh, to make an impact on the uh, current conversation in the public and political mm-hmm. spheres. And I think that, um, you know, the company, first of all, it's not the company, the history of the company is always conflated with the history of the British Empire uh, and the later uh, 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 British Raj in India of the 19th century. I don't think the company mm-hmm. itself is portrayed in, in a particularly visible way in, in non-academic conversations or in popular media. Um, and I think that really uh, William Dalrymple is probably almost, uh, uh, certainly in, 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 in the British um, non-academic conversation and, and, and media, I think that's really, he's, he's really almost single-handedly the one shaping the kind of non-specialist understanding of this topic. Um, and mm-hmm. and I think that, you know, other than being invoked as a cautionary tale for corporations in the modern day, and having having read William Downsville's book, which, by the way, I think is a fantastic narrative history, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, one that really acts as a vehicle for, uh, you know, I think commentary on modern capitalism and its, and its dangers of allowing corporations to run rampant, uh, which I think is a really important point to make. Um, and I think it does a fantastic job of showing um, the way in which empire, you know, um, is is destructive and leads to legacies of inequality and exploitation. But I think that that this needs to happen on a much larger scale. And I think the company needs to be evoked, not just as a cautionary tale about corporations, but it needs to be more integrated into our understanding of empire. Um, the company wasn't exceptional. I mean, it's always invoked as this exceptional, you know, um, uh, entity in in the world. But actually, it was it you know emerged from a heritage of you know um, European empires being you know uh, decentered and as 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 being kind of outsourced by uh, uh, European states and as um, you know being predicated on 
you know, coercion and violence in most parts of the world. So I don't think the company is mm-hmm. exceptional. I think we need to come away from that narrative. Um, and I think that we need to do more to engage public audiences with, with not that cautionary tale of the company as a corporation, but as a manifestation of European empire. Um, I don't think we can just understand it in its corporate context. That's really important. Um, I, so I think that, I mean, one of the things, the other thing that um, the anarchy does is it almost solely focuses on the Indian subcontinent, mostly because, you know, it suffers from what I spoke about earlier, most history starting really in the 18th century. I mean, uh, the anarchy covers the, the earlier period in, in its first chapter, then the rest of its chapters are almost squarely focused on the Plassey period and onwards. So mm-hmm. again, the, you know, you're, you're telling a story from the middle of the book. You're not looking, you know, you're not going back to the beginning, which is super important. Um, and so I think that, I, I think that there's, there's, there's a rich opportunity here, I think to feed into the public discourse about empire. Um, and the company is probably the best way to do that. Um, so, so yeah, I think I think this is the chance for historians of uh, empire and the company to to make a big impact, and I hope they do. Great, thank you so much. Uh, and I've taken way too much uh, of your time, so thank you so much for you know uh, giving up so much of your time to do this podcast. Um, but before I let you leave, uh, could you just tell us what you're working on now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, talking about uh, um, you know um, uh, public uh, public audiences, I, I kind of pivoted slightly for my my next book, which I'm writing at the moment is is um, uh, will be published by Penguin um, for a, for a non academic audience, and it will be a narrative history of the early modern British Empire um, from 1500 to 1800. So it's looking at three centuries. It's looking at the early modern world, but it's it's attempting to do it. Um, not um uh not from the british perspective but it's looking at um it's really a history of the early modern world at the at the moment of british expansion and it's attempting to um come away from narratives which really cast um the early modern world as this kind of passive victim of british colonialism um and many of these 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 cultures and societies uh do fall victim to british imperialism um but the but what the book is trying to do is gives them their agency back and to show that many of these shaped the the british as much as the british were themselves able to shape these cultures and societies um so it'll be looking at the way in which the non-european world was a powerful rich diverse place able to resist british imperialism and to um shape its own history um, uh, well, well into the uh, 18th century. So it's a, a, a new history, I think, of, of the British Empire, one from a non, non-British perspective. So we'll be looking at, for example, um, a Sivaji in, in the Maharathas in India and the way in which that mm-hmm. was the kind of key narrative uh, uh, story uh, and not the rise of Bombay, for example, which was you know, on the fringes of, of Western India for much of the late 17th and early 18th centuries. Um, it's looking at the colonization, for example, of North America as being very uneven and 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 haphazard, and the way in which um, the English um, schemes were were wrecked or or reshaped by indigenous um, um, Native American cultures and societies. Um, I'm just just finishing a chapter on on Banton, the Sultanate of Banton, for example. 
um, and the way in which the East India Company uh, completely failed to achieve commercial success there, um, losing out to more important commercial groups like the Chinese, for example. So it's kind of rewriting the history of of uh, England and Britain in the early modern period, not as being this inevitable dominant force, but actually being a bit of a failure and being actually shaped more by the cultures and societies they encountered that they were themselves were actually capable of doing. So it's taking, in a way, the premise of this, this, this my first book that we've been discussing and mm-hmm. painting it on a much larger canvas to show that the early modern world was a resilient, complex, capable and powerful place. And the English were just one uh, component of that, not the dominant narrative. Great. That sounds fascinating and a really important book. So thank you so much and good luck. Uh, good luck with your writing. Thank you. And thanks again for having me on. Much appreciated.